one of the reasons I love being a teacher and a professor is that every time I teach a class, I walk away going, either I just remembered something I'd forgotten, or in teaching someone something, I have a revelation that opens my eyes to something that I didn't know before. Hello, and welcome to We The Project's Roll Call. I am Matt McManus. I'm one of the hosts of this platform. We talk to many different kinds of professionals in entertainment, directors, producers, musicians. Our guest today is Golan Ramraz. He's not only a wonderfully creative and eclectic producer and writer, he's one of We The Project's new Roll Call hosts. I'm looking forward to getting his story because he's devoted his life to the art of storytelling. And that's intriguing to me, and I'm very interested to ask him some questions and very lucky to be working with him. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's exciting to be here. And a couple of quick maintenance things just to get out of the way. First of all, uh, I'm glad you did it this way. I'm sure it was on purpose because it gave me an opportunity to say this. I'm just going to pronounce my name. Funny thing is, I'm I'm Israeli as well as American. And, uh, and even in Israel, I have to pronounce at least half of my name. So uh, this is something that I've done all over the world. First name, Golan. Last name, Ramraz. So it's an S, but it has a Z sound to it. Ramraz, very kind of superhero Voltron kind of thing. My daughter's name starts with a Z sound, but it actually starts with an X. So by the time we're done, we just we all sound like we're something out of uh, a 1980s kids cartoon. But uh, yeah, Golan, Ramraz, and uh, and I'm excited to be here, and I'm excited to be part of the platform. I think that this is such a spectacular thing that you you guys and all of us now are doing, and I'm excited to be able to contribute my voice to it. Yeah, and it's a, a pretty cool sounding voice too. I just want to throw that out at you. So. Your first credit on IMDb is from 1989, when you were, I believe, 12 years old. For personal reasons, this is what I was most excited to ask you about, because it's my favorite television show, The Wonder Years. From my perspective, that's an amazing place to start, but I'm sure that's not the actual beginning of your story. Where does your Hollywood journey start for you? Well, first of all, it's funny that uh, that you ask about that because there was there was a moment, and the moment lasted far longer than a moment that I thought acting was going to be my my thing. It was I was very passionate about it. I loved uh, being on stage. I loved being on camera, and now, of course, on the radio. See, so I get to or whatever the modern equivalent of the radio is in a podcast. So I'm still doing some version of it. But basically, where did I start? Let's start with that. So I started with when I was very, very, very young. My dad used to tell this story to me all the time, which is I was a, a beautiful baby with very long eyelashes. I was a very chubby little baby. And everyone just assumed I was that basically the number one thing my dad was asked was, oh, what a beautiful little girl. What's her name? And so uh, it became one of those things where I just had this like cherubic thing going on. So as I got a little older and I realized that I had that look when I was young, I look very different now, I thought I would try and go on stage and, and see if it was something that appealed to me. I had had friends whose kids were modeling and friends who even as children had been in local commercials and things like that. And I thought this is intriguing to me. So I went to a camp 
like a summer camp for acting. And I just fell in love with it. I thought it was spectacular. Mm. I loved the idea of, of being able to come up with new personas. I was a heavyset kid. And I loved the idea of being able to get out of my skin, even if I had to stay in my skin, if that makes any sense. And so I, I did that for quite a long time. I acted like crazy. I enjoyed it so much that I was doing school plays. I was doing local plays. I was doing local commercials. I was doing uh, anything I could get my hands on, frankly. And because I also had always been interested in writing, again, maybe as a, a means to not, for, not to make this into a therapy session, but maybe as a means to get out of my head every once in a while and, and create these fantasy universes, I started writing things that I was acting in. So even as a kid, I was writing little plays or writing little monologues. So the combination was something that just fulfilled everything that I needed. As time went on, I started watching television shows and I got really obsessed with, I don't know if you guys remember, L.A. Law. Really mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was Corbin Burnson and, uh, you know, all these um, amazing uh, Harry Hamlin, all these cool guys that uh, I thought, well, this is this, first of all, is a great show to watch. I was way too young to watch L.A. Law. But in addition to that, I assumed, well, this is what being a lawyer looks like. Um, <laughs> I didn't understand quite yet that television was sensationalistic and all of that. So taking the acting and the writing and watching LA Law, I thought, well, being a lawyer is the perfect combination of being a an actor and being a writer. Because you had to, of course, when you're watching the show, it's all about coming up with the perfect closing argument. All the other torts and research and everything else that went with it wasn't part of the show because who wants to watch that? So really, all I thought was, if you're a good orator and you can write a great speech, well, you're a great lawyer. And so now I know what I want to do. So all I was doing was talking about acting and writing and being a lawyer. And I pursued that in my uh, career later on. And I pursued that when I was a kid. Those were my hobbies, all of that. And so eventually, uh, in, in true me fashion, I convinced my parents, okay, I was in Arizona at the time. I said, let's go to California. I want to try my hand at this acting thing. And they were like, very sportive. And I said, okay. So they took me out. And I got to go do a couple of uh, auditioned things, some background stuff. And I was doing background on a little movie that, remember Billy Blanks, who did Tybo? Uh, I do. I do. Absolutely. Yeah. He, he did a, a movie that I think later they called Showdown, but I was just a background extra. It was one of those things where it was like, I'm on a set. This is amazing. And I was just a guy in the background. But Brian Jones, I think was his name. Brian Jones was an actor who had been in the movie The Player and Tango mm -hmm. and Cash. Yeah, and for whatever reason, he was, he was playing the principal in the school and he plucked me out of the background to be the bad kid spray painting. So there were no, it wasn't like I became a lead actor but they gave me an under five, you know, lines. And it was fun. It was one of those things where I was like, well, it's happening, it's happening. And while I was there, I got to uh, experience what it was like and meet some people who worked in the business. And I came back a couple of times, did that with my parents. But it was such a short thing that they were able to bring me back a couple of times. And I managed to get small roles, like Doogie Howser, MD, for instance, you can like nice. see my arm 
in one scene <laughs> and uh, you can hear my my voice improving something like behind the scene that's going on and then the wonder years uh i was supposed to be a very very small part and they ended up it was still a small part but uh, it was me being the sidekick of the bully that was bothering kevin and you know uh, it was uh, it was a super trip i enjoyed it all and uh, and then for for whatever reason i stopped going back and doing all of that uh, because i got more and more into theater and that i was doing locally and so I, I started doing a ton of theater back in arizona and they also at one point they started bringing some films into my hometown and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, for instance, was shot there. And I'm in two scenes of that. And, uh, San Dimas High School Football Rules. But uh, but it was shot in, it, not only was it shot in, in Phoenix and in the surrounding area, but if I'm not mistaken, this is one of those things, someone can fact check me later, but I'm fairly certain when you watch the movie, they're mm. supposed to be in San Dimas and they're at a, a Circle K. Now, 7-Eleven was ubiquitous all over the United States, but Circle K was very specific to certain parts of the U.S., and didn't exist in San Dimas, but did exist in Phoenix. And so instead of changing it, because it wasn't, they didn't have a huge budget for that sort of thing, they just kept it a Circle K. And if you remember the line, you know, strange things are afoot at the Circle K. And they, just, the circle K. they just kept it in. And, I, and all the local people were like, that's a Circle K, we have a Circle K. And it's because it was shot there. And when they go to Waterloo, that was Golfland Sunsplash. And when they go to the mall, that was Metro Center. We were there. We were at all of it watching and, you know, in the background. And like Napoleon's running to go to the uh, slide. He moves me, little fat kid moved me aside. Um, and so it it was a ton of fun. Yeah. But, uh, but I, I stopped doing a lot of that stuff, started doing a lot of local theater. And then I became super involved in local theater. And uh, not to jump too far ahead, but when I years later, very involved in, in local stuff, uh, had to go to the Israeli army. Uh, I was living back and forth my whole life between Israel and America. And when it was time for me to go, it's required service. I knew that after it was over, I was going to continue acting in some capacity, but I knew that I was going to go to law school after that. And that was going to be in Sheffield in England. And so it was going to change everything. So you went back and forth from Israel and then you were in the army and then you did uh, indeed go to law school directly after that in England? No, uh, I did not go directly to law school after that. I, uh, I, I did the army. Um, that was that was three years. And then um, the idea was I'd been accepted already. I was going to this uh, law school in Sheffield. It was actually the way they do it. There is you're going to university and law school simultaneously. So it's, it's kind of funny. So I, I, I've been obsessed with film and television and, and all of that. It was something that I knew at some point I was going to do something in it. I assumed it was going to be in the acting field. When I was in the army, uh, at one point I was in a sharpshooter unit and they had come to my unit and basically said, who knows how to, ironically, shoot film. And I did not. I knew how to be an actor, but I didn't actually understand the technology behind it. But they did say that whoever does this particular thing is going to get additional time off, the freedom to leave the base, uh, you know, time to put something together. So I raised my hand. I was like, I know I know how to do that. I did not. But I said I did. And they went, great. All right. And uh, I was also because it was the Israeli army and I'm I'm half, but I'm very American. 
uh, at least the way I speak and all of that. They knew me as an outsider insider. And so they assumed, well, if he says it, he must know because he's the outsider insider. Nobody else knows what Hollywood looks like, but he comes from at least the same country. So they gave me a camera. And this is a long time ago. This was in the 90s. So it was, uh, I was cutting film like with actually cutting physical film, hanging stuff up. Mm-hmm. And they hand me a camera, they hand me a couple cans of film, and they handed me an editing system, and I didn't know what I was looking at. This is pre-internet, uh, being able to Google everything and watch the YouTube tutorials and listen to podcasts like this. It was basically just, oh, I better just figure this out, because it's the army. And uh, they don't love it when you lie to them. And so uh, the idea was I was shooting an internal documentary about the sniper unit, about the sharpshooting unit of the Israeli army that only was to be seen by that unit. It was an anniversary, either a retirement, it's been years now, an anniversary or a retirement of one of the heads of the unit. And so I ended up going to different bases and interviewing people and shooting a bunch of footage and I figured it out. I figured out how to edit, pieced it together somehow and made a movie. I became obsessed with it. I thought, this Mm. is so cool. I'm watching stuff that doesn't go together. And the way I'm editing it makes it look like it goes together. And I'm, I'm taking footage from one location and splicing it together with another location and making it look like a cohesive scene. It was just fascinating to me. And I knew obviously that that's the way it worked, but I'd never done it before. I'd never had a hands-on experience like that. So once I had that hands-on experience, I knew, uh-oh, I think I'm sold. And uh, as someone told me years later, it's the most expensive drug habit you can have. The highs are, are not as high as uh, like a heroin, but the cost is way more expensive. Um, and so that's the film industry. And so I started putting stuff together in my spare time. I went and got myself a consumer grade handheld camera. I think I still have that actual camera, fairly certain, and started shooting stuff, started making movies by myself with my little brother, with friends and like all the people that, you know, came up with a video camera in their hand or, or a beta camera, whatever it is. I just started making a home collection of of self-made films. And I was obsessed. And I knew that after that, I was not going to go to law school. Changed course, uh, went back to the United States and studied film and theater. Part of that was performance. I was still an actor. And so I got a degree in acting from the theater school at Arizona State University the Honors College there, which for theater at the time was ranked number seven in the United States. And they didn't really have a film program yet. I actually was one of the people who helped establish that film program through founding the Phoenix Film Festival and then IFB Phoenix in Arizona. But at the time, it was just film classes. And so essentially, I created kind of a minor in film and I did that. So this is going to jump around a little bit but you worked in reality television i would say in its golden era you know blind date singled out how did you get into that what was it like it must have felt like the wild west in retrospect and how or when did you make the transition to working on film specifically the simplest version of the story is i needed work that's where the work was So it wasn't that I pursued reality or docu-series or anything like that. It was what was out there. I had started making short films, like I was saying, just with my friends. uh, And then as time went on, the films got more complex. Uh, We spent more money on the equipment got better. I was working at Arizona State 
after I'd graduated uh, as a media specialist, which meant we would fly, we were working for essentially the Department of Education, the U.S. Supreme Court, all these different kind of corporate clients, and we would fly all over the country. And we had great equipment. We had stuff that the university was providing us with, $100,000 cameras and early media 100 editing software and stuff like that. And at a certain point, we realized we have a good enough relationship here. They trust us. We're traveling with the stuff all over the country. Maybe when we're home, when it's not in use, we could use it to shoot some of our own stuff. So we got permission to do that, coupled with some of the equipment that we actually owned, and we started making uh, short films. It was a blast. We had a really good time. And it was mostly just for us, because it was pre-internet again, or pre-internet being what it is now. And so you couldn't make money with a short film. Suddenly, as we were in the midst of it, we found out that someone uh, was trying to upload stuff, you know, shorts to the internet super early on. And it was bizarre because the internet was much, much slower. So if you wanted to watch a short, you know, you're you're getting on the internet, the slowest version possible, and you had to dedicate yourself. Like, I'm going to wait a long time to watch this three to five minute short film. You better really want to. There were companies like iFilm and Media Trip and Atom Films, and they were doing. They oh, were I remember starting, Atom Films. Yeah, there yeah. you go. So that, this was just at the beginning of that era, and mm. we ended up being one of the earliest short films uploaded to the internet. One of our one of our mm. shorts, and it became not to overstate it, but it became kind of a phenomenon along with a handful of others. And so what ultimately happened was our short got purchased by a company, one of the early internet companies called Media Trip, um, right. which was owned by Joe Roth, who had, uh, who was, had been the head of Disney and then uh, went on to found Revolution Studios. And still, pretty, if you look on IMDb, you'll see a list of credits a mile long and there are, um, you know, all the biggest films that Disney did and stuff he did years later as well. A lot of the live action Disney remakes and stuff like that. And so he owned this company and he was determined to make this a powerhouse. He could see ahead that the Internet was going to be a way to view media. And so he ended up. But at the time, it was so slow to do it. And DVDs were still very much a thing because they were still such a thing. Uh, Joe and the guys over at Media Trip they decided we're going to release a compilation of short films, the most successful uh, short films, in one big compilation. And we had done a, a film parody. We had done a parody of Fight Club called Film Club. And it was like underground film clubs. First rule of film clubs, you don't talk about film club. Uh, second rule is uh, no, no outside lighting. Everything must be naturalistic. Like it was one of those things. We had a, like our, our Brad Pitt lookalike and our Ed Norton lookalike. And uh, even Fincher ended up seeing it. At one point, we were actually in negotiation to get it on the Fight Club anniversary DVD, which didn't end up happening. And it, it was a really successful thing. And it goes on this DVD and it sells so much that this is when Amazon was selling DVDs like crazy. We were the number one sold DVD on Amazon at one point, this short film compilation. It was amazing. It was unbelievable. I still have an early version of what a screenshot is of that, and I'll hang on to that forever. Um, we were part of, uh, there was a whole bunch of them. It was a film club. It was George Lucas in Love, uh, which, which also went on to be a, a phenomenon of a, of a short film. It was Swing Blade, which was a combination of Swingers and Sling Blade. 
Evil Hill, which was Notting Hill, but uh, with Dr. Evil and Marilyn Monroe. It was just a whole bunch of stuff like that. Short film, film parodies. So in this package of short films, mm -hmm. right, was the Fight Club parody that you made and then also another parody of Swingers, yep. right? That And this was – and the gentleman uh, with the last name Roth that you just mentioned, right? Joe Roth, yeah. He, he packaged it together and released it. It became successful. But if you take this whole project apart, John Favreau, who was in Swingers, who wrote Swingers, mm -hmm. I believe. Yeah. John Favreau was, uh, you know, in the film and then also in life, just a, another struggling actor from New York in Los Angeles. And the, the movie's about a breakup. It's one of my favorite movies, but it's also about Los Angeles. It's about friendship in Los Angeles. And it's also kind of like a time capsule piece. When you watch it now, you really remember what it was like back then. It was done appropriately. Point I'm saying is that a lot of the live action Disney stuff that this gentleman, Joe Roth, when it would go on to aid in with Disney, The Lion King, The Jungle Book, right? John Favreau directed those those films. So could you have even, you know, if you would have taken John Favreau aside at that point in time and said, hey, listen, I know that, you know, you're going to be doing this film Swingers. People are going to parody it and we're going to, you know, put it in the hands of this man who ultimately would go on to give John Favreau some of the greatest jobs in in his career as a director. And I and I may I'm saying all of this because it correlates to you, sir, in the sense that. You were you were an actor. You had a passion for storytelling via that one avenue, and you have been able to matriculate and turn that into other things, such as writing, directing, and producing. And you wear a lot of different hats. Mm -hmm. And that's not that dissimilar from a John Favreau, right? Uh, right. And it's, you, it's a it's a flattering thing to even be compared to the man. John is someone who I have a lot of circuitous roots uh, that connect together, and I've worked with him on a number of occasions now. And uh, it's. It's one of those things where I remember, so, okay, real quick, I'm going to jump back just for a moment and then I'm going to come back ahead. So I'll just clarify one thing is that Joe, by the time John had come in and started doing the Disney remakes, Joe, uh, Joe had left Disney. He had started producing with Black Patel, who now I believe is over at Sony. They started producing things like Oz the Great and Powerful and Alice in Wonderland, which started the process of the remake kind of live action remake craze. But he wasn't the one who directly gave those things to John, but he began the process that eventually now is kind of mm -hmm. John's kind of the grandfather of, uh, in a sense, although John is the grandfather of a lot of things, in a sense, because he kind of even even another one of your places that you worked at. I was going to say he without him, Marvel wouldn't be Marvel uh, without him. I would argue uh, Disney TV or Star Wars TV rather wouldn't be Star Wars TV. And and frankly, the most successful of the and most well-respected of the Disney Star Wars canon is definitely in his hands. And I think that'll continue to be that way. And the same thing with the Disney live action remakes with uh, what he did with the Jungle Book, I think changed the game. And then uh, he was able to do it again with Lion King. And, uh, and I have a feeling that's not going to change. But the thing to remember about John is that, not to make this a John podcast, but I'm a bit obsessed with the man is... When I first met him, it was before Iron Man had come out, before Iron Man, had, it was a thing. And he was the guy who had made Zathura. And uh, the first time I met him, he had made, it was after he made Elf, actually. I was, mm -hmm. uh, I was working uh, over at New Line and I'd been asked to be in the test audience, like it was for the press for a film that no one had heard of called Elf with Will Ferrell. And Will Ferrell was the guy that I like. He was fine. I enjoyed him on Saturday Night Live, but he wasn't like the guy I was going to go crazy for. And I sat mm. in the audience with a bunch of press and I laughed so hard at Elf 
that people thought I was a plant for the press to be like, see how aggressively funny it is? That guy can't shut up. There were lines of dialogue they couldn't hear because I was laughing so hard. And I'm, I, I like laughing, but it was unusual for me to go to that extent. And I just mm. enjoyed it so, so, so much. And when he answered the phone, I'm, this is Buddy the Elf, what's your favorite color? I lost it. It was the very first time and I didn't know what it was. So I was coming in blind and it, nobody had been talking about this. It was at the studio that they were literally in the screen room with the, in the bottom floor on Robertson. I enjoyed it so much that I thought, this is amazing. This is the actor writer of Swingers. That's that's incredible. I can't believe this is the guy who directed it. And people kept saying, who directed that? John Favre. No, no, no. That's You're thinking of the wrong person. No, I'm not. It's unbelievable. He could do this too. And then years later, when he did Zathura, which wasn't a big hit, I was a gigantic fan of Zathura. And Zathura is ultimately what got him Iron Man. Because when you watch Elf is, is great, but Elf is a comedy. Uh, but when you watch Zathura, you recognize he can handle effects. He can handle action. He can handle all of this stuff, you know, the snarky attitude uh, that, uh, that some of the characters have. It was a perfect correlation. And the studio... Uh, well, we were the studio, but the financing uh, that was coming from uh, from Wall Street, they weren't sure. They they were like, all right, we trust you guys. And uh, and so Fabro ended up taking the director's seat there. And even that led to, without going into some stuff I'm not supposed to talk about, when, when, when Robert Downey Jr. came in, it was really kiss, kiss, bang, bang that brought him in. And that was a similar kind of thing, something that hadn't been a big hit, but showed he could handle a specific kind of role. And that's why Shane Black comes in to do Iron Man 3. And so, I mean, the ripple effect is unbelievable. But but I argue that it would not exist. Marvel would not exist today if Favreau hadn't taken the helm of that. And uh, the whole point of what I was saying was, is that I remember right after Iron Man happened, before all of the other stuff, and there was a top 10 list of top 10 directors of all time. John Favreau was number 10 on the list. And people were like... Mm -hmm. He's hardly directed. I wanted to be direct. Made an elf, and you know, and this, and that's it. He's three movies. How are you? How are you going to put him on that list? And now people are like, okay, there was some foresight there, because he, yeah. he was supposed to direct Swingers. You know, as you said, this is this is a guy who he knew what he wanted to do. He, he was tired of being pigeonholed as, uh, if you remember, PCU is like the fat I love friend. PCU. Me too. He's gutter, yeah. you know, and that, he was tired of being pigeonholed in that way. And so he he decided well, to he was a Rudy. He was the fat best friend in Rudy too. He was always. And that was exactly why he he lost that weight. And he wrote the thing for himself and was supposed to direct it. It was very much a, you know, I, I look, there's a handful of, of stories like Stallone with Rocky, where you, or, you know, or Goodwill Hunting or another other, a handful of other ones where you can see someone saying, I'm tired of where I am and it's time for me to make a move. Otherwise, I'm going to get stuck in whatever trench I've, I've built for myself. And he said, I'm done with this and I want to do something else. And he became a romantic lead. I mean, what? That guy? Gutter? Doesn't even make sense until you see it. And then it Listen, there's a line in that movie that I quote regularly. There's a, it's He's sitting at the diner and he's like, can I ask you one more question about my breakup? And he's like... Sure, because I guess the Ron had gone through a breakup similarly and was giving him advice over and over again. And and Favreau was like, "What happens when you get over it? What happens when you you're over the breakup?" And Ron was like, "You want to know? You miss the pain. you you miss the pain." 
And I and I was I don't know 17, 18 years old when when I saw that and I I understood it because I was going through a breakup. But like the profound nature of missing pain after it's gone, like it's like a ghost pain or something like that. And I just knew that like for some reason I was going to be connected to this art maker for forever. And if you think about, it, by the way, because Ron Livingston, right? That's his name. Ron, Ron Livingston. So if you think about it, like that when those characters we're talking even the outsized character like Vince Vaughn, all of us related to something. And by the way, that's, I, I think that goes for men and women, even though it's a primarily like male obsessed, you know, males are obsessed with that movie. I think it speaks to anyone who is dealing with change, with heartbreak, with uh, trying to figure out who you are, identity, all of that in a way that most films don't get that deep when they're that fun. And I, I think that's incredible. And the amazing part about that is that the director of that movie is who I ended up going to work for years later. So another, another circuitous connection that uh, that's Doug Lyman. Uh, you know, to our listeners out there, is could you just give them a soundbite about because, like, you know, you go to acting school, you went to acting school and they tell you, you know, you act, you get good, you have talent. If Hopefully you have talent. Uh, you move to Hollywood, you get an agent, a manager. Mm -hmm a publicist and, and you're off to the races kid. And that's not how it works. It's not what it's all about. There's all these daily things that take place either by practice or by chance. And sometimes both if you're lucky and it, it can set off a ripple effect. And sometimes the ripple effect, you don't see how far it goes or when it's going to come back to you. Mm -hmm. And it does, you know, you can plant seeds in 19, in 1999 that can ultimately grow into a tree in 2020 it's happened to me so is there any way to or to put that to condense that and put it together in some kind of lesson well in in terms of in terms of which aspect of it because i can probably do it but i i want to make sure i don't go too far afield which aspect are you are you specifically thinking about Making connections in Los Angeles. Okay, let's go micro and then we'll go macro. So the idea of making connections in, in Hollywood, in Los Angeles, uh, or, or whatever you want to call that particular bubble that people live in, in the entertainment industry, that's everything. I mean, it's, it's frankly everything. My entire career is built on a platform of connections, Rolodex, relationships, longevity, and I, I've taught classes all over the world, uh, including in universities in, in the States and uh, in private institutions in other countries that where I've just taught how do you go about making connections? How do you go about developing relationships? To me, that is, I, I, I'll give you a good example. Right now, I'm in the midst of, uh, of putting together a film and the conversations that we're having about we're going to talent is my partner on the project. They have a team. And every actor we're talking about, one of the people within the conversation, whether it's me, whether it's my partner, whether it's his partner, it's, can we go to that actor or that actress? And the answer is, let's go to this one. You know, I know, I know her sister. I know the manager really well. I'm best friends with the agent. You know, whatever it is, it's, it's all about that. You can go blind and make an offer to somebody, but the minute you have the ear of somebody because there's a relationship there, it changes everything. And that goes for... I think everything I've done from top to bottom. The reason why Doug Lyman asked me to come over and become his executive was because I was at CAA. He was a client. 
He liked talking to me about story. Uh, his partner, Dave Bardis, who had been at NBC, a spectacular uh, executive who went on to be a producer with Doug, and they developed the company Hypnotic with Gene Klein. They asked me to come over because I was dealing with them on a regular basis. We'd become friendly with one another, and they respected my opinion enough to say, come on over, leave the agency world, come over and be an executive. That wouldn't have happened if I'd been just applying blind off of LinkedIn. Not that those things can't happen, but it's a different animal once you have a relationship. It, it gives you a leg up that there's nothing else can, can match. And so the idea of, without going into an entire networking class right now, for all of those uh, potential filmmakers or actors or whatever that are listening to this, if you're interested in being in this world or really any other at this point, the idea of going and developing those relationships is, to me, number one priority. Hone your skills, you know, continue to do stuff in your free time. If you're working in the entertainment industry, I always call it two tracks. You work in the, the traditional track where you're a PA and you work your way up the ladder until you finally become the head of a department or a director or whatever. But at the same time, every weekend, every waking moment, especially since everybody has a basically a movie studio in their pocket at this point, go shoot stuff with your friends on a regular basis and either you become... I think about like Barry Sonnenfeld's a good example. Barry Sonnenfeld, cinema, cinematographer for, and had been working as a cinematographer, working his way up little by little by little by little. And then the Coen brothers who went and raised, I think it was uh, their money from 65 dentists, like 10 grand a pop or something like that to go make Blood Simple. He's their cinematographer and that movie hit. And then suddenly he's a cinematographer. You're done. You don't need to go that. The other track can go away now, but he worked his way up and he honed his skills by doing the traditional track. And at the same time, he was doing the independent track. And which one's going to make you get you there first? There's a lot of examples of people who, you know, would have taken them 10, 20 years to, to do it the traditional way, but they were able to do it in a shorter amount of time the other way. And there are other people who worked their way up. And eventually, Catherine Hardwick's a good example. She was costumes, wardrobe, and she became a master on that side of the industry and eventually got to a point where someone said, I like your, I like your voice. I'm going to give you an opportunity. But she'd been doing it for such a long time. So when they gave her 17, I think was the movie, with Evan Rachel Wood, she directed that movie and it was like... It might have been 13. 13. You're right. Thank you. 13. I was thinking of Edge of 17. Yes, 13. And when she directed that movie, it was like, okay, all that time you spent looking at characters and, and figuring out who they are, but in this case, to put clothes on their backs, now you're doing their internal life to put the camera in their face. And it was spectacular. And then, of course, she went on to do Twilight, and that was that. So it, both tracks are important. And Fabro is a good example of that, uh, you know, doing the acting thing one step at a time, getting all those small roles and, you know, like what Ben Affleck and, and Matt Damon were doing. Uh, until they were able to get their indie project off the ground that in some cases turned out to be not so indie when all was said and done. It's, it's amazing, especially right now. And even the program that we're working for and the website that we're working for is aiming to change the way that people network within the industry and connect and create together. And you're in Spain right now mm -hmm. and I'm in Los Angeles. You know, everything is remote right now. So you wear a lot of different hats, man. And I guess the reason I'm saying that is I, I do too, and I have, and I didn't see myself learning to wear all the hats that I've worn, but in this juncture, in this time, because I'm not saying I'm good at it, but I've learned how to manage 
diversifying my talents so I can, you know, do things simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And right now, because I, I've, people have looked at me like, why are you doing all these things? Why are, you know, I used to make social experiment prank videos in the street and people used to be like, why are you doing this? Yeah. It's because I saw a show called the Tom Green show when I was 18 years old. And I said, I want to do that. And that, and I ultimately did do that on television. But right now, because I diversified, I mean, this is one of the things that I'm doing, this podcast, because I was, uh, you know, aggressive in within networking. I released a five song rap EP album a year and a half ago about helping little kids turn their problems into powers. I did a podcast with a famous dentist called Bill Dorfman, who is oh. a wonderful man. And he is Oprah's dentist. And he asked me to host his fundraiser gala. Right. So I hosted it when the comedian backed out and then I handed out my business card that day. And then a year later, someone called me from the Producers Guild and asked me to host the Producers Guild's Oscar party in Hollywood last year. I went and did that. And I met the young lady named Sandy who works for We The Project. And she basically introduced me to the team shortly thereafter. And that's how I have a job as a podcast host. Like it's it starts with a five song rap a uh, hip hop rap EP and ends with a podcast, you know, and in between there was like Oscar events, so on and so forth. Uh, you know, if you would have told me that when I wrote a song a year and a half ago and recorded it because of the content of that song, I would meet a famous dentist who would ask me to host, you know, like, like how do these things happen? Right. They just do. If you do like all those stories know? of uh, the personal trainer, know someone that ends up getting the script to somebody that ends up being a producer on the project. And yeah, those stories are all over the place in Hollywood. I love them. And you know, it's, you know, it's feast or famine, right? Sometimes, (laughs) especially now in Los Angeles, like the, the, but I was talking to my buddy who's a photographer now who was once an actor, but now he's like Madonna's photographer. He, and I were talking and he's like, I miss being an actor when I see uh, I, when I see people get the jobs that they wanted, and I could sense the high coming off of them. And I remember that that concept of chance was so attractive to me; it was almost like a drug. But the the flip side to that is the waiting and the and the and you know the uh, the doors closing in my face over and over again. Mm-hmm. And and you know. To this day, I'm still an actor. I I still am. You know, I was on a veil for a national commercial, you know, Christmas commercial last week. It doesn't happen. You know, I, I, you know, I'm the voice of Old Spice right now. So like, yeah, (laughs) that's great. You know, I, I I can't, I, I do so many things and I'm scared sometimes that I do so many things. But, you know, but I think that, uh, I think, well, two things real quick. You say you're, you're an actor. I, I've stopped acting. But I still kind of love it. I just, I'm not going to go audition. I'm not interested in living that life. But my wife recently wrote and produced her first feature. And she convinced me, and by convinced me, I mean she told me, uh, that I'm going to act in it. And then I did. So I'm the I'm the male lead in this this thing, um, and so every once in a while it pops up. Uh, I can't I can't help it, and I enjoy the hell out of it. I'm just. I, I, I will never go back to being a full-time actor, but I guess uh, if I don't have to audition, I could just get handed it on my own projects. All right. I was thinking about that today, actually, is that with this thing I'm producing uh, next has such a small cast. And I'm like, maybe I could play that one guy who's in that one scene just for the fun of it. 
Yeah. <laughs> so I still I still enjoy it enough to try and shoehorn myself into at least a I cameo. I'm hearing that. I'm hearing that. <laughs> and the funny thing yeah. is, by the way, speaking of all these connections, you mentioned Tom Green. So I I kind of know Tom, and uh, I don't know if you know uh, John Schneider, who who manages him and is, is a, just a great guy, very smart dude. I don't. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, but just maybe last year I was, he was looking for a writer's assistant. Tom was looking for a writer's assistant. And I was, I was feeding some people over to John, you know, to try and get them working together. So it's funny you mentioned that because even I have a connection there. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's not name dropping. That's just proof in the pudding of networking, you know, yeah, but uh, precisely. Well, and, and that's, and that's exactly is to, so to, to, to dovetail the networking thing into what you were just talking about, the idea of wearing all of these hats and doing all of these jobs. I think those things all go together too, because in this day and age, it used to be, it used to be, they said, you, you want to have one specialty. Don't do too much stuff. Focus on one thing. Be the person who is the best blank you can be. And that's still the case. Obviously, you want to be able to hone whatever skill you have. But as technology changes, they also want you to be able to do more things. You know, uh, I'll never forget the first time someone said the, the title, the job title, Predator to me. And I thought, that's the coolest job title I've ever heard. And then I found <laughs> out it was a, a, a producer editor. And that had to do with when, when we were doing reality stuff and it was like a field uh, producer that's also going to edit the footage later or something like that. And that wasn't something that really existed before that because there was a producer and then there was an editor and you handed it off and then you gave notes to the editor. And every once in a while you found someone who did multiple things, but it, it wasn't really the norm. And these days it used to be if you're a jack of all trade, you're a master of none. But now they want to see that you are also going to direct it, edit it, be the compositor. If you can do the effects, that's great. Be the DP. You know, Doug is a good example. Doug Lyman, um, he often will take the camera, put it right up on his shoulder. And, you know, Soderbergh does this, too, where he's like, I'm the cinematographer, Mm. too. You know, Um, the the Coen brothers, the Coen brothers, uh, Roderick Jane, I think, is the name of their editor who doesn't actually exist. Uh, it's the Coen brothers. They're also the editors. You know, so these are these are the things that I think more and more this is becoming the norm. And the Bradley Cooper, Bradley, forget Bradley Cooper. There's an insanity there because it's not it's not really, really fair that he looks the way he does. And is as talented as he is in so many different ways. He didn't he didn't dole that out appropriately. He got too much. I love Bradley Cooper. Yeah. So I, uh, I, 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 Bradley Cooper in inside the actor's studio, he you could see him in the audience, you know, asking uh, Pacino, not Pacino, De Niro questions, and um, huh. and then later starring alongside him. It's crazy though that you can materialize <laughs> these things. I mean, so I guess the point is, you know, we've gone on a lot of tangents here, but and yeah. I and I hate to sound like a motivational speaker, but I am. A, in some part, a motivational speaker. It does work out. I saw a, the Tom Green show, realized I wanted to do that on MTV, and one day I did. Um, you know, Golan wanted to be an actor, make movies, work in television, be an artist that works and makes connections and changes the world with with his storytelling and his craft. And he has. Um, oh, and the story. I appreciate, I appreciate you saying that. 
Yeah, and the story. Well, it's very impressive, man. You know, I was talking with John, our other new co-host for this thing last week, and it's amazing. You have to, you have to champion the people around you that you believe in. You know, because you know we have an immense amount of doubt, even in lieu of success, and we have to, you know, establish a routine of congratulating people for doing a good job of what they've done. And you have, you definitely have. I appreciate that. Well, it's it's interesting. I know we're. Uh, not, not to go on another tangent, but I had a very similar situation where I came into Hollywood with a very specific goal in mind. And that goal was to be a writer. Even though I was producing, my goal was to be a writer. And I was writing script after script. And uh, at a certain point, I remember I after we did the short films, this is this is good. This is an educational thing. OK, so mm-hmm. educate, it was educational for me. And maybe I can help some other people not fall into the same pitfalls that I fell into, uh, which was I showed up, I was, I was, a I was a hot commodity for a minute because of the short films and, mm. and Joe uh, Roth. And it was Greg Silverman who went on to be the president of production over at Warner brothers. And now, uh, now has stampede. All these guys are still masters of industry and they brought me in and they said, all right, let's see what you got. And I started writing movies for revolution and they weren't getting made. And at a certain point, I remember going to Greg and saying, Greg, what do I do here, man? I keep writing movies. They're not getting made one reason or another. It was, we had a project that uh, Harvey Keitel was going to do. And then little Nikki happened the same, you know, same year or right around the same year as you five, seven, one. And Harvey Keitel was getting hot again. And he was like, I'm not going to do this little indie. He dropped out. Uh, we mm. had a fat suit comedy we were doing for Julia Roberts and then Shallow Hall happened and it was like, well, clearly she's not going to follow up the Gwyneth Paltrow, same kind of joke, you know, and so little by little, all these things were happening. And it was like, well, how, this is so frustrating. How, how do I get these movies that I've written that now are just the toilet paper? Forget it. They're, they're museum pieces. They're never going to get made. And he said, if you want to be in charge of what happens with your material, you also have to be the producer. And I was like, all right, well, and I got my way into the writer side of this industry, at least my foot in the door, but I don't know how to get the producer side of myself in. And uh, so I went and talked to him. He said, he, he said, go talk to all these different people. He gave me names of people. One was uh, his brother and his partner who were running a management company called Argosy. Uh, and the brother, his brother left the industry, Daron Silverman, but his partner went on to like produce Prisoners, you know, that Hugh Jackman, Jake Gyllenhaal movie and, and other big stuff. Um, and I went to all these different people and said, what do I need to do to become a producer? What's the, what's, what do you suggest? And I remember it was Nancy Cotton, who now is a big TV executive at the time was running TV for icon for Mel Gibson. She said, go work at an agency. I was like, all right, go work at an agency. So you can learn it from the inside. Sure. So you can see what contracts look like and understand the business side. Sure. But really, so you can go make connections. That was really what that was about. So to go back to the relationship building thing, that's why you go work at an agency. And I said, okay. And I went over to work at uh, CAA and I said, I need jobs. Yeah. Well, but it wasn't CAA at first. It was Abrams Artists, which now is is A3. But at the time I was Harry Abrams was sitting in an office across from me. And I was I was working with all these amazing people that we had Zach Braff. We had J-Lo. We had Frankie Muniz. We had all these cool people. And uh, Walt Goggins, who's still one of my all-time favorite actors. And it was just surreal to be in that environment. It was mostly actors. It was mostly talent. And then I realized, okay, I need to do the lit thing, too. And so I went from there over to CAA with uh, actually Mm. two friends of mine who had also gone from Abrams over to CAA. 
and I started working for the head of the TV lit department there. And we just had spectacular clients, you know, CAA obviously being, I think, arguably the biggest uh, agency in the industry. Yeah, it's, uh, and maybe the biggest, maybe the most influential company in the industry. And so, you know, I got to watch, get coffee for Steven Spielberg. I was an assistant. I got to escort Julia Roberts down the hall and things like that. But eventually, when I started getting a chance to talk to the clients, I was talking to people like Damon Lindelof when he when he was creating Lost. I still send him, you know, we're still in touch. I still send him emails. He still sends me back, and we we talk about what he's got going on. Uh, same thing with with a lot of the clients that I had there, and Doug being one of those clients took me from mm-hmm. there over. But the reason I tell that story is I came in as a writer, and I suddenly got shifted into the producer side of things because that was the suggestion: be a producer. But it was be a producer so you can control your writing output. And I forgot about the writing output. So I started being a producer and an executive, and I did that for a long time. Uh, And years and years and years later, when I was working with a friend of mine who said, you know, we had an investor that said, okay, I want to make a movie. How do you do this? And it was like, well, it's expensive. He's like, I'm rich. Let's do it. Okay, well, we need a script. He goes, well, why don't you write one? I was like, oh, my God, that's right. I came out here to be a writer. And I hadn't Mm. written, I had, it's a misnomer to say I hadn't written. As a development executive, I'm writing a ton. I'm developing, I'm rewriting, I'm giving notes, a lot of uncredited rewrites on stuff, which is part of the game. That's just how it works. I had a friend, I won't say his name in case I'm not supposed to, but he worked for a company that basically every movie they made, at a certain point, he would just take home and rewrite from scratch or sit with the star. I remember at one point he was like at the star's house for months, rewriting movies that you only have one credited writer and it's not him. And he was just the development executive. So that happens constantly. And I was doing that regularly, but I wasn't writing my own stuff. And I wrote an independent, little independent horror film just because I knew that could sell. And sure enough, that investor said, okay, it's financed. Let's go shoot it. We got this tremendous uh, female director who we took it to New York and we shot it. And the day two of production, I met my wife or re-met my wife because we had met originally in college. And then I suddenly was in New York. And it again, my whole life changed again as I decided to be a writer. So it's almost like I took 10 steps back to go, now that I've developed an entire career as a development executive and a producer, now I'm going to start developing a brand new career as a writer. It was fascinating to look at the industry with fresh eyes, with a bunch of connections, though, this time, but almost back at step one in terms of reputation, because it's a new new sector. And so I've had an opportunity to more than once kind of build a career in the entertainment industry. And each time I learn something new, and one of the reasons I love being a teacher and a professor is that every time I teach a class, I walk away going, either I just remembered something I'd forgotten, or in teaching someone something, I have a revelation that opens my eyes to something that I didn't know before. You have been in this industry for a while now, putting this puzzle together and leaving certain areas unfinished or just almost done or completely done. And over time, the picture has solidified and it all kind of makes sense. And when it doesn't make sense to you is when that doubt can take over or where you go on, where you go down a different path and you're like thinking, oh man, I left that other piece behind. But it's always there and you learned it and you put it together. 
And you never know when you're going to have to access that part of the puzzle or when the whole puzzle is put together. Because the truth is the puzzle's really never put together. Well, and in the entertainment industry, because this isn't a a sing, even though sometimes you'll read articles about a singular vision or an auteur or something like that, this is the ultimate team sport. You know, the only person that can work in this business alone is the writer. And that's just words on a page until someone takes it and makes it something more, makes it a film or makes it a series. And so it's the ultimate team sport because you need everybody working in tandem. You need every aspect of the business to be working in order for something to get made, something to even get developed, even after it's made, for it to be distributed properly, marketed properly. Every single person on that team has to have a role and all of them have to be well-oiled and, and working like a, like a, uh, in tandem, working as, as a cohesive unit. So kind of speak to what you're talking about. One of the things that I always recommend is, especially when you're starting out, when you have the time, you haven't developed a reputation in one particular sector yet, do as many things as you can. One of the things that I tried to do when I first uh, got on set, uh, and part of that was the reality shows where I was able to just kind of play, uh, was I tried to jump into as many departments as I could. I did sound. I'm a horrible sound guy because I fidget like crazy. And so even if I had those great gloves on, I'm holding the boom and all you hear is as my hands are like shifting on the pole because I can't stand still. So that's not where I belong, but I understand sound in a way that a lot of people who've never tried it now don't. And so when I'm on set as a producer, I can speak to my sound guy or my sound team and have them be able to speak their language. And I did the same mm-hmm. thing when I, I, I tried to work as a grip. I tried to, you know, g and I tried to do every department I could. And so even if I, I'll use the word failed in that department or I wasn't appropriate for that department, I learned enough to be able to communicate with that department. And as a producer, that's invaluable. Even as a writer, frankly, that's, in, that's invaluable because there are things that I know there's two versions of writing. One is when I was writing plays way back in the day, and I remember one of my mentors said to me, I said, well, well how, do, how are they going to be able to pull what I'm about to write off? How are they going to pull it off? It doesn't make sense. It's going to be too expensive. It's going to be too elaborate. And she said, your job isn't to do that. Your job is to write whatever the hell is in your head. Their job is trying to figure it out. Let Miss Saigon figure out how to get the helicopter or Phantom figure out how to get the chandelier falling down. Or, you know, or, or whatever it is, but don't worry about it. So that's one version. The other version is when you're also going to produce something or you also know that this actually has to happen and there's a budget attached to it and whatever else, don't write the dragon coming into a hundred person battle scene because you're just wasting your time or you're saying this isn't going to get made. You know, I was just, I was just talking to a, a really good buddy of mine who's a spectacular writer who has had a good amount of success in the industry, uh, but he's a director at heart, but he really hasn't had mm-hmm. an opportunity to show it. And I keep telling him, you're the, you're such a great writer. Your dialogue is unbelievable. Write something for your, yourself to direct. These days, take your iPhone, who cares? You know, find friends who have equipment. And he has. And so he wrote this thing and it's like for him to direct. And it is, it's so expensive battle scenes and and special effects and insanity and i'm like okay well i hope that's a spec that you're willing to give up because that's not the thing you're going to go direct on a shoestring to prove to everybody that you're a director so okay he keeps he'll keep writing them until one of them fits and then he just wrote based on that conversation he just wrote another script that has a lot of the same elements to it but now on a much uh, smaller scale and so he's now going to be able to i believe 
put together a budget to make that happen. And then he'll prove himself. And then the other one, I said, put it in a drawer. And when you get to that point, then you can go make that one. You know, and I think of mm-hmm. another mentor of mine who was also a, a client, Christopher McQuarrie. Chris McQuarrie, who has, I think, I think is arguably one of the greatest action directors of all time. When I met him, it was way after he'd already won the Oscar for Usual Suspects. He was putting together a movie about the Stanford prison experiment that we were trying to produce or finance. And we just hit it off. He started telling me all these stories about his house and his, his family. And, and we just became friends, not business, just friends. We've never actually done business together, but I've stayed in touch with him ever since. And he has been a great voice in terms of advice and all of that. And when you look at his career, it's a great example. He wanted to be a director. That's what he wants. But he started winning Oscars for writing, right? And so he kept writing, developed this relationship with Tom Cruise. And when he was putting together like Way of the Gun, which is all the elements, it's still action. It's still, you know, guns and crime and all of that stuff. And it didn't work. He was, or didn't work at the box office anyway. He was devastated and he didn't know exactly how to play from there until he got an opportunity later to start doing other stuff like Jack Reacher. And then Jack Reacher, of course, led to Mission Impossible. And now he's the Mission Impossible director. And I don't think anyone can look at the films, at least the the ones that Chris did, and say he didn't change the entire genre of action films. So writing your time and waiting, all of that, these are all elements that are important for success. Because I'm one of those guys that, I I hate to admit it, I don't like trying new things sometimes because I already want to be a master. I already want to have mastered the art. I studied guitar for five minutes. I cannot play the guitar. I've always wanted to play the guitar. But when I started, I was like, I'm not as good as, you know, Trent Reznor. So why am I playing this? What am I wasting my time for? It was like, give it a second. My God, like, hang on a minute. You give it, literally give it two weeks and then maybe you'll see that you're improving. I have a daughter that I have tried desperately not to pass this down to. uh, But it's something that it took me time to realize just because you didn't jump in and didn't already master it from day one doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. And this is an industry where there is no mastering. There is just continuing to learn. And there's a saying about films that I love that I, I tell my students on a regular basis. Films are never completed. They're never finished. Films are abandoned. The reason it's so profound is you can continue editing and continue editing and editing can go on for a decade. It can go on for a century. Who knows? It can be passed on to, to other people to continue editing later on because there's always something you're going to learn and there's always something you're going to see because of two more days of life experience. I have two more days of life experience. I can, I can insert into this edit. And at some point you have to let it go with the exception of George Lucas, who can continue changing Star Wars uh, forever. But the idea of being aware that you will learn stuff later on, but you're as good as you're going to get right now, do what you can now and, and be open to the learning experience so that later the next thing will be even more profound. That was something that took me time, but I think it's key to succeed in the industry. And, and sometimes you never really – you try and make plans or you, you can try and plan for the future in regards to like things you want to do creatively. But one of the coolest things about this business, if you make connections, if you stay true to your art and yourself and your peers, is you don't know what's coming around the corner sometimes. And sometimes that's a really exciting thing. 
It's been great talking with you today. Hey, thank you. Thank you very much. By the way, I appreciate the opportunity. It's been a while since I've reflected on my own journey, my own career here. And uh, and so it's fun to take a little walk down memory lane, especially to go all the way back to when I was, I was acting and making shorts and stuff like that. And so I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to do that. And, and some great questions, man. I My hope is that what we were able to do is get enough information in whatever form we were able to get it out of our uh, our minds to people that it's helpful, that it's it's useful, that they can take this, maybe learn from our mistakes, maybe learn from the lessons and be able to continue to climb the mountain. Cause it's, it is a mountain, it's a slog, but it's such a rewarding thing at the end of the day, especially creatively fulfilling. And, uh, and to me, that's, that's what makes your heart sing. I agree. Thanks again. This is We The Project's Roll Call. This has been a wonderful and insightful episode. We'll be back every week with a new person and some great new insight. Thanks again. I'm Matt McManus. Thank you for listening to the Roll Call podcast brought to you by We The Project. If you are interested in becoming a part of the We The Project community, you can head over to wetheproject.com and sign up for our newsletter. Thank you to Whiteheart Grove Productions, a partner in post-production for the Roll Call podcast. Produced by Petros Media.